Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, discuss, throw in our own opinions and experiences when necessary, and share what we've come up with with all of you. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Melissa. And today, we're going to talk about Canada Day because we're Canadians, born and raised. In the past few years specifically, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding Canada Day, specifically calls to cancel Canada Day in a sort of reflection to grieve and discuss colonial violence in residential schools. I want to make it clear that my personal stance is that I love my country, and I realize that there are things about Canadian history that are absolutely horrific, especially when it comes to the Aboriginal and Indigenous people to whom our land belongs to. But I am and always will be a proud Canadian, and there is no other place I would rather call home. I do hope that moving forward, Canada and all its people, especially those who were here before the colonizations, before the immigrations and migrations, and be united and understand one another and be a stronger nation moving forward. Today, we're going to be discussing the history of our country, the good and the bad, and we'll also look at the tragedies and injustices that our Aboriginal First Nations sisters and brothers have gone through because they are stories that need to be told. I am also very proud to be Canadian. Uh, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, Um, you know, but I used to think that Canada Day was a fun holiday because I know you don't get the real story around it. So you're just like, you know, day off, day off of work. We we can celebrate where we live and celebrate our country and be proud. But the more I learned about Canada Day, the more I realized I was quite wrong. And I think there needs to be change and recognize everything that happened to the Aboriginal Indigenous people of Canada. But And that's what we're going to focus on today. So before we get into the First Nations and residential schools, we just wanted to give a brief summary of Canada, as well as cover some Canadian history for our listeners. Because as per our podcast statistics, the majority of our listeners are from the U.S. And just as we don't learn about American history as children in schools here, we're sure you don't learn about us. So let's see how much we can cover without boring everyone to death. Okay. So first, let's go over some basics. Canada is the second largest country in the world in area. Russia is the first. But despite the large size, we are one of the world's most sparsely populated countries with roughly 38 million people as of 2020. Although we are few in numbers, Canada has crafted a multicultural society welcoming immigrants from all over the world to add to the diversity and richness of the land. Canada is officially bilingual in English and French, which is a reflection of the country's history as grounds was once contested by two of Europe's greatest powers. The word Canada is derived from the Huron Iroquois Kanata, which means village or settlement. Canada is comprised of 10 provinces and three territories. The provinces are Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, Ontario, Prince Edward Island, Quebec, and Saskatchewan, and the territories are Northwest Territories, Nunavut, and Yukon. The difference between provinces and territories are the way in which they are governed. The provinces exercise constitutional powers in their own right, and the territories exercise delegated powers under the authority of the Canadian Parliament. The capital city of Canada is Ottawa, which is located in two provinces, Ontario and Quebec. Canada is part of the British Commonwealth and the Queen remains Canada's head of state, even though we became wholly independent in March 1982. 
Now to get a bit more historical. Prior to European colonization, the area that now makes up Canada was inhabited for millennia by Indigenous people who had their own trade networks, spiritual beliefs, and styles of social organization. From the late 15th century, French and British expeditions explored, colonized, and fought over various places in North America. The colony of New France was claimed in 1534, and settlements began in 1608. France ruled from 1534 to 1763, but lost nearly all of their North American possessions to the UK in 1763 after the Seven Years' War. Quebec was divided into Upper and Lower Canada in 1791, as the two provinces were deemed the province of Canada of the Act of Union 1840. The province of Canada was then joined by two other British colonies, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, through confederation and formed a self-governing entity. Canada was adopted as the legal name of the country, and over the next 82 years, Canada expanded by incorporating other parts of British North America, finishing with Newfoundland and Labrador in 1949. Although there had been a responsible government in British North America since 1948, Britain continued to set its foreign and defense policies until the end of World War I. The passing of the Statue of Westminster in 1931 recognized that Canada had become co-equal with the UK, and the partition of the Constitution in 1982 marked the removal of the legal dependence on the British Parliament. And there you have it. Canadian history in like 10 minutes. Not bad. There is, of course, a lot more to our nation's history, but we wanted this episode to focus more on the torrid past of the nation and how, as a nation, we're hoping to move forward. So let's take this conversation back to the First Nations, shall we? The name Indigenous People is a collective name for the original people of North America and their descendants. The name Aboriginal Peoples is also used. The Canadian Constitution recognizes three groups of Aboriginal Peoples, Indians, which is First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. These are three distinct groups of people, each with their own histories, languages, cultural practices, and spiritual beliefs. Approximately 1.67 million people in Canada identify as Aboriginal, according to the latest census. Before we get into controversial subject matter on how each of these groups, or collectively how they've been treated and disrespected by the Canadian government, we would like to take a look into each of these peoples and to help all of us get a better understanding of their culture and practices and how and why they are proudly Canadian. Let's start with First Nations. There are more than 630 First Nation communities in Canada, which represent more than 50 nations and 50 Indigenous languages. So, as Vanessa just briefly mentioned, First Nations is a term used to describe Indigenous people in Canada who are not Métis or Inuit. As of the latest census, 980,000 people identify as First Nations. The term First Nations should be used exclusively as a general term, as community members themselves are members of specific nations or communities within those nations. For example, there are Mohawks, Iroquois, Plains, but each of those can be broken down further into how a person may choose to identify. Indigenous people have been in Canada since time, and they had complex societies before Europeans came to North America. With colonization and white settlements, the traditional indigenous ways of life were forever altered. Colonial practices and policies such as the Indian Act, past system, reserves, and residential schools were implemented to control and assimilate Indigenous people. We'll take a look at these in more detail today, including their lasting effects on communities. The next group are the Inuit. The Inuit are the Aboriginal people originally of Arctic Canada. 
Inuit is an Inukitic term literally meaning the people. Inuit communities are located across the Northwest Territories, Nunavut, North Quebec, and Northern Labrador. For centuries, the Inuit communities have relied on their natural resources, strong leaders, and the innovative tools and skills to adapt to the cold, harsh environments of the Arctic North. The Inuit mainly survive on fish and sea mammals like seals, whales, caribou, and walruses. Out of respect for the land and ocean that provided for them, they used all the parts of the animal efficiently for food, clothes, tools, coats, blankets, and boats. By the 1940s, the government began to settle the Inuit into permanent communities and were pressured to adapt to the Western ways where they became dependent on the government for education, healthcare, and other services. The majority of Canada's 60,000 Inuit live in small communities of less than 1,000 people. The communities are located 1,000 kilometers away from one another, which causes vast transportation and communication problems. Some communities are only accessible by air. Some may, want to call, some may want to call the Inuit Eskimo. However, the term has a controversial history. For many people in the Arctic, the term is derogatory as it was racist, non-native colonizers. And although not clear, people thought it meant eat, eater of raw meat, which connoted barbarism and violence. A newer theory believes the word Eskimo came from the French word Eskimo, which means he who knits snowshoes which is something the Inuit do very well. But the new theory is a bit late and the word cannot be rehabilitated. So we and you as well should continue to use the word Inuit for people and the singular, for people and the singular term Inuk. Lastly in Canada, we have the Métis. The Métis are mixed people of European and Indigenous ancestry. The term Métis is used to describe those mixed-race individuals who mainly originated in Western Canada in the 19th century from the Red River Settlement. Métis is simply not an Aboriginal person with mixed heritage, but one who can trace their lineage back to the Red River Settlement. The Métis Nation's homeland are the three prairie provinces, parts of Ontario and British Columbia, the Northwest Territories, and the Northern United States. Members of the Métis Nation have a common culture, ancestral language, mischief, history, political tradition, and are connected through an extensive network of kin relations. There is no concrete evidence as to when the earliest mixed Indigenous European marriages can be traced. They could have been as early as when the Europeans made contact. This is something that has always been greatly debated in scholarly circles. Another differentiation between Métis people are the small M. Métis communities, where their communities emerged during the Great Lakes fur trade in the 18th century. So capital M. Métis of Red River, and then the small M. Métis of the Great Lakes region. Despite the distinction in terminology, the two communities or the two people were often connected through marriage and kinship practices. From the research we did for today's episode and what I can remember from history class in school, the Métis, both small M and big M, have the most complex history, battles and war and trade, etc. There's literally so much info on the Métis that we could do a whole episode on their history. But we won't do that today. So if you're looking for more info, I suggest doing a Google search to find what you're looking for. The blending of European and Indigenous traditions has created a unique and rich Métis culture. For example, in their traditional dance and music, the Métis fiddle and jig. With the help of the Canadian Encyclopedia, let's get into those colonial practices and policies that we mentioned earlier, starting with the Indian Act, which is the primary law the federal government uses to administer Indian status. 
local First Nation governments, and the management of reserve land. The act was first introduced in 1876, and it subsumed a number of colonial laws that aimed to eliminate First Nations culture in favor of assimilation into Euro-Canadian society. Since, since that is, of course, a horrid thing, the act has been amended several times, most significantly in 1951 and 1985, with the changes mainly focusing on the removal of discriminatory sections. The act itself is an evolving paradoxical document that has enabled trauma, human rights violations, and social and cultural disruption of generations for Indigenous people. A bit of historical context to give a better foundation to the information we're sharing. Prior to the Indian Act, there was the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which laid down the law on how colonial administration would interact with First Nations people, guaranteed certain right and protections to First Nations people and established the process by which the government could acquire their lands. Further policies were passed in the first half of the 19th century that aimed to assimilate First Nations people into the growing settler population. The 1850 Act for the Better Protection of the Lands and Property of the Indians in Lower Canada was one of the first pieces of legislation that set out requirements for a person to be considered a legal Indian, a person who could claim quote-unquote status. The requirements were based on blood and essentially said that people with Indian blood and members of a body or tribe of Indians had status. Non-Indians who intermarried with those who were defined as Indians too, as were mixed race children or people with one parent considered to be Indian and those adopted by Indians. The Gradual Civilization Act of 1857 and the Gradual in the Gradual Civilization Act of 1857 and the Gradual Enfranchisement Act of 1969 aimed at removing any special distinction or right of First Nations people in order to assimilate them into the population. Though this was supposed to be voluntary, as in First Nations people would give up their status in exchange for land and the right to vote, the government began to unilaterally enfranchise First Nations people. In 1867, the Constitution Act gave Parliament control over Indians and land reserved for Indians. In 1876, the Gradual Civilization Act and the Enfranchisement Act became part of the Indian Act. Via the Department of Indian Affairs, the Indian Act gave the government sweeping powers with regards to First Nations identity, pol political structures, governance, cultural practices, and education. The powers restricted Indigenous freedoms and allowed officials to determine Indigenous rights and benefits based on good moral character. The Act forbade First Nations people and their communities from expressing their identity through governance and culture. Hereditary chiefs, leaders who acquire their power through descent rather than election, were not recognized by the Act. Women were also excluded from council politics. The Act also made it illegal for First Nations people to practice religious ceremonies and cultural gatherings. Powwows and the Sundance were banned as were all other festivals, festival dances, and ceremonies. In 1914, dancing off the reserve was outlawed, and in 1925, dancing was outlawed altogether. It was all very Kevin Bacon, small town, footloose apparently, but it gets worse. In 1927, the act made it illegal for First Nations people and their communities to hire lawyers or bring about land claims against the government without the government's consent. Children had to attend industrial or residential schools, and by the late 19th century into the 20th, the act was used to support the past system, which restricted the movement of the First Nations people off reserves. This greatly impacted the sale of goods off the reserve, which have had lasting impacts on generations of Indigenous people. Up until 1961, 
There was even a compulsory enfranchisement section where you lost status if you graduated university, married a non-status person if you were female, or became a Christian minister, doctor, or lawyer. So if you exist. Pretty much. Oh my goodness. So if all of that was a bit wordy for you, First Nations people were forced to live on a land reserved for them since their original land was taken from them and distributed how the government saw fit. The reserve land they were forced to live on was poorly maintained by the government. They were then not allowed to leave the land they were put on, which greatly hurt their incomes and self-sustainability due to their lack of trade and resources. They weren't allowed to be in government or have their own. Their children were taken from them and put in schools far away to be assimilated, and they weren't allowed to practice their cultural traditions anymore. The First Nations were, and in a way still, are culturally destroyed. In 1951, some of the most offensive political, cultural, and religious restrictions were removed. Bans on ceremonies and dancing were removed. Communities could bring about land claims against the government. First Nations women were able to vote, and Elise Marie Knott was the first elected female First Nations chief in Canada. However, the act didn't get rid of discrimination. Status individuals were prohibited from possessing intoxicants or being intoxicated, and child welfare was still a provisional jurisdiction, not federal. The 60s scoop was a period of time in which policies allowed welfare authorities to literally scoop up Indigenous children from their families and place them in foster care, where they would be adopted by white families. It's no secret that residential schools existed, and in recent years, due to the findings of mass graves and countless bodies being found on various residential school lands across the country, we're going to focus more on the 60s scoop and residential schools. As mothers and as Canadians, Vanessa and I can't even fathom what it's like to have your child ripped from you and taken away. Children were severely punished if the rules were broken. Former students of the school system have spoken out about the horrendous abuse at the hands of residential school staff. Physical, sexual, emotional, and psychological. Students were also provided inappropriate education that focused mainly on prayer, manual labor, and agriculture, light industry work like woodworking, and just domestic work like laundry and sewing. The residential school system undermined First Nations, Métis, and Inuit cultures across Canada and disrupted families for generations. Their ties to their heritage were cut, which contributed to a general loss of language and cultural traditions. Many students grew up without a nurturing family life and have had devastating effects on communities. The residential school system is widely considered to be a form of genocide because it was, per- because it was a purposeful attempt from government and church to eradicate all aspects of a people and their culture. The residential school system was created due to the fact that European settlers believed their own civilization and way of life to be the best. They saw the socio-economic ways between themselves and the indigenous way of life as proof that Canada's first inhabitants were ignorant and savage. This led to the ideas that from young, the indigenous people needed to be civilized, which they believed had to be a federal responsibility. Sir Johnny MacDonald, the prime, Sir Johnny MacDonald, the first prime minister of Canada and the Prime Minister at the time, commissioned studies of the industrial schools in the US, the equivalent of residential schools, and so the system was born. The schools were severely underfunded, and as Vanessa mentioned, the students were taught primarily practical skills. Girls were primed for domestic service and taught laundry, sewing, cooking, and cleaning. Boys were taught carpentry, tinsmithing, and farming. Many students went to class part-time and the rest of the time did work for the school without compensation. 
With so little time spent in class, many students had only reached a grade five or less level by the time they were 18 years old. The abuse was also horrific. Emotional and psychological abuse was constant. Physical abuse was used as punishment and sexual abuse was common. Survivors recall being beaten and strapped, some shackled to their beds, and some had needles shoved into their tongues when they spoke their native languages. Abuse with overcrowding, sanitation issues, inadequate food and healthcare resulted in shockingly high death tolls. Some past students do recall positive memories of their time in the system, and I'm sure there were kind priests and nuns who ran the schools best they could despite the horrible condition and funding, but the good cannot outweigh the bad. At this time as well, the government began the process to phase out residential... Oh my God. At the... At this time as well, the government began the process to phase out the residential school system and segregation and began incorporating Indigenous students into public schools. Indigenous students struggled with the Eurocentric system where their knowledge was excluded and they were discriminated against by their non-Indigenous peers. Post-secondary education was discouraged as those who wanted to attend university and eventually graduate would have been enfranchised as we mentioned earlier in this episode. In 1969, residential schools in Canada began to decline. And in 1996, Gordon Reserve Indian Residential School in Saskatchewan, the last of its kind, was closed and demolished. As of 1999, the Department of Indian Affairs registered that there are no remaining residential schools in operation. In 1951, with the amendments to the Indian Act, the system of half-day schoolwork was progressively abandoned and things transitioned from the school system to the child welfare system. The 60s scoop refers to a particular phase of a larger history and not to an explicit government policy. The practice of removing Aboriginal children from their families and into state care existed before the 60s and the drastic over-representation of Aboriginal children in the child welfare system accelerated into the 60s when children were seized and taken from their homes and placed into middle-class Euro-Canadian families. Over-representation continues today. In the 60s, the child welfare system did not train or educate social workers on dealing with children from Aboriginal communities. Social workers were unfamiliar with the culture or the history of the Aboriginal communities they were entering. Their knowledge was that they believed proper care was based on middle-class Euro-Canadian ideals. Additionally, upon seeing the social problems on the reserves caused by the government in the first place, poverty, unemployment, and addiction, social workers sought their duty to protect the local children. Many of the children were placed in homes where their heritage was denied. Many children were told that they were French or Italian. Government policy did not permit birth records to be opened unless both the child and parent consented. So even though many children suspected their origins, they were unable to confirm. Children who were unable to be placed permanently were bounced from foster home to foster home or lived in institutions. Physical and sexual abuse were not uncommon, but was generally covered up due to the lack of social services and support for Aboriginal children. As studied by the Indigenous Foundations, which is where we collect most of our research, children growing up in conditions of suppressed identity and abuse tend to experience psychological and emotional problems. The root of these problems don't usually emerge until later in life, when these individuals have feelings of not belonging in Euro-Canadian society or in Aboriginal society. They have, an un they have an underdeveloped sense of identity. During the 80s, changes were made to the Aboriginal child welfare in Canada. 
The Kleinman Report, which released a highly critical review of child apprehension and made 109 recommendations for policy change. The Johnston Report, which was the first comprehensive statistical overview of Aboriginal child welfare and resolutions by First Nation bands, led provinces to amend their adoption laws to prioritize placement as follows. First, within the extended family of the child. Second, by another Aboriginal family. And third, by a non-Aboriginal family. And in 1990, the INAC, Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, created the First Nations Child and Family Services Program, which transferred administration of child and family services from the province to the local Aboriginal band. Unfortunately, many problems still exist today. Aboriginal children are still overrepresented. Oh, unfortunately, many problems still exist today. Aboriginal children are still overrepresented in the childcare system and are six times more likely to be taken into the system than non-Aboriginal children. In 2007, Canadians Auditor General confirmed that INAC's funding provisions were not equitable to non-Aboriginal communities. In 1989, Canada helped the UN Convention on the Rights of a Child, an international instrument that set out the minimum standards of human rights for children everywhere. And although Canada helped draft the convention, in 2007, UNICEF reported that Canada has been slow to honor its commitment to uphold these rights and ensure the well-being of children. The report addressed in the situation of Aboriginal children saying, improvements are urgently needed to ensure that Aboriginal children have adequate housing, safe food and water, protection from environmental contaminants and access to healthcare. Policy is constantly under review and revised. According to the report of Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba, several generations of Indigenous people were taught that their traditional ways were inferior, including their languages and cultures. The schools were operational through several generations, so the process of healing will also take several generations, a process that has already begun, but it's not an easy one. We cannot view the residential school system as only in Canada's past. The last school didn't close until 1996. So in Indigenous communities, many leaders, teachers, grandparents, parents are survivors. The effects will linger for years. Quoted directly from the Indigenous Foundation, because we couldn't have written it any better. The historic intergenerational and collective oppression of indigenous peoples continues to this day in the form of land disputes, over incarcerations, lack of housing, child apprehension, systemic poverty, marginalization, and violence against indigenous women, girls, and two SLGBTQIA peoples and their critical issues which neither began or ended with residential schools. Generations of oppressive government policies attempted to strip Indigenous peoples of their identities, not only through residential schools, but also through other policies, including, but not limited to, the implementation and subsequent changes to the Indian Act, the mass removal of Indigenous children from their families into the child welfare system, known as the 60 Scoop, and the legislations allowing forced sterilizations of Indigenous peoples in certain provinces, a practice that has continued to be reported by Indigenous women in Canada as recently as 2018. And currently, through the modern child welfare system in which continue to disproportionately apprehend Indigenous children into foster care in what is now called the Millennium Scoop.
And in mentioning the Millennium Scoop today on the news, actually, there's like a big lawsuit going down about the Millennium Scoop. I didn't have time to have more detail before we started recording, but um, it's definitely a thing and it's definitely in progress right now. Um, So we do not by any means implore you to not celebrate Canada Day. Like we said, we're proud to be Canadian, but we make sure that we know and that our children who are also born on this soil know that the land we celebrate and live on so peacefully was wrongfully taken from those that first inhabited our country. There certainly is a lot of good going on in Canada, and there is, of course, bad going on as well. So, happy 155th birthday to our home and native land. May its past be remembered and never forgotten. May the present be a turning point for us as a nation to do better for all who live here, and may the future be a place where everyone can be who they want to be, when they want, and how they want to be in a safe, peaceful, inclusive nation. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Please remember to like, follow, or subscribe to Mixed DNA Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on our social media accounts for more info on today's episode, content, or past and future episodes as well. We can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mixed DNA Podcast. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye.